0: From Britain to the Bocachil, from Lummi to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Samamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 40, The U.S. Navy in the Jim Creek Valley. The United States Navy arrived in Jim Creek Valley in Snohomish County in late 1953 and began construction on the world's most powerful radio transmitter, which was completed in 1954. In its original form, it was designed by the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, and was capable of transmitting messages instantly to every one of the Navy's installations, ships, and aircraft all over the world, including submarines traveling beneath the ocean's surface. Six steel towers on the summit of Blue Mountain and six on Wheeler Mountain to the north were connected by cables, with lengths varying from 5,640 to 8,700 feet. The result was a massive dish formed by the zigzag pattern of 10 cables strung between the towers over the valley. Additional towers that rise from the valley floor provide the necessary support for the cable's midpoint energization through vertical cables carried by these towers. It is powered by a direct transmission line from the Bonneville Dam on the Columbia River, and a 2,500-kilowatt Worthington diesel-powered standby generator was constructed in 1957 as a backup power source. Many features of the complex, including the Worthington Generator, were determined to be suitable for the inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places in 2016. The generator, which had been in service for more than 60 years, was scheduled to be removed and replaced in 2019, but I'll get to that at the end of the episode. When Japan surrendered on the 2nd of September 1945, officially bringing the Second World War to a close, the United States was the only superpower that was left standing. The U.S. Navy, which at the end of the war had more than 6,700 ships, including an impressive 232 submarines sailing every ocean on the planet, played a major role in projecting the country's military strength. In spite of the fact these numbers were substantially reduced in the post-war years, the Navy continued to be a global force and it required a radio communications system that could transmit signals to all of its assets in real time, reliably, and with complete security. The naval radio station at Jim Creek would be the first to meet that need, and a few technical specifics are necessary to grasp the significance of this facility's distinction. A radio wave is the fundamental building component of radio communications, and it is found in the lower areas of the electromagnetic spectrum. The complete spectrum covers everything from radio waves to visible light to gamma rays, which have extremely high frequencies and small wavelengths and are exceedingly dangerous. The distance over which a wave shape repeats is described by the term wavelength, which is commonly measured between two subsequent crests or troughs of a wave. The relationship between wavelength and frequency is inversely proportional. The lower the frequency, the longer the wavelength is. The unit of measurement for the frequency of a radio wave is stated in terms of hertz, which can be used as both a singular and plural noun, which is abbreviated as HZ, 3000 Hz or 3 kHz to 300 billion Hz or 30 gig or 300 GHz is the frequency range of the radio section of the electromagnetic spectrum. Consumer devices and services that are widely used such as mobile phones, GPS, Bluetooth, television and land radio operate in either the very high frequency VHF or ultra high frequency UHF radio bands, which are measured in millions of hertz and have a frequency range between 30 and 3000 respectively. In order to accomplish its worldwide range, naval radio station Jim Creek transmits an extremely powerful, very low-frequency VLF signal with a wavelength of about 7 miles and a frequency of only 24.8 kHz. However, in the following decades, the United States military developed transmitters that employed even longer wavelengths. There were a number of factors that influenced the design of these specifications. Obstacles that are the same size or greater than the wavelength of the signal have a negative impact on the transmission of electromagnetic signals. The longer the wavelength, the fewer the things that can have an impact on it are in number. The signal from the Jim Creek transmitter has a 7-mile wavelength, which means that it can pass through most obstacles on and near the surface of the Earth that would interfere with shorter wavelengths, such as buildings and other structures, hills, and weather disturbances in the troposphere, without being interfered with. Furthermore, the lower the frequency, i.e., the longer the wavelength, the more readily a signal can permeate liquids, such as seawater, as previously stated. Because of this, submarines that are just partially submerged can receive Jim Creek's signal without having to raise a telltale antenna above the surface of the water. Another feature of the ionosphere is that the very low-frequency waves bounce off positively charged atoms, ions, in the lower layers, which are located between 37 and 56 miles above the surface of the Earth. On their return journey, the waves contact the Earth and are reflected back up to the ionosphere, where they are subsequently reflected back down to the surface. This back and forth curates a wavelength which bounces the signal back and forth again, allowing it to travel over the horizon and around the curving surface of the globe. The Jim Creek Station is able to connect with all of its assets regardless of where they are located because of this phenomena, which places the entire planet within the reach of the station's radio transmissions. The fact that long wavelengths are highly resistant to jamming by natural, e.g. atmospheric or man-made interference, is another advantage of VLF and one that is particularly important to the military in this context. However, there are certain disadvantages too. VLF transmitting antennas must be extremely large and precisely placed in order to be effective. Receiving antennas can be significantly smaller, but the larger the antenna, the better the reception. Therefore, submerged submarines must unreel and tow unwieldy antenna lines in order to take up VLF signals. Additionally, the quantity of information a wave can convey is related to the frequency of the wave. That is, a lower frequency signal can carry less information than a higher frequency signal. VLF is not intended for the transmission of audio or huge amounts of data, and it was originally designed as a simple on-off Morse code keying system with a maximum transmission rate of only 20 words per minute. VLF remains an inefficient and time-consuming method of transferring large volumes of data, despite the development by the Naval Research Laboratory of an automatic teleprinter system and other advancements that boosted its capacity. In part due to the requirement of a large antenna for broadcasting a long-range VLF signal, the system is essentially a one-way system, which means that the recipients of the signals must respond, if at all, using higher-frequency communication modalities. The fact that the VLF signals from Jim Creek can only penetrate seawater to a depth of approximately 65 feet means that submarines, while capable of receiving messages while submerged, must remain very close to the surface and well inside range of enemy sonar. Very low-frequency communication, VLF, had been investigated by the United States Navy since before the Second World War, but it was not until July of 1946 that the Chief of Naval Operations directed the Navy's Bureau of Ships to investigate the Puget Sound region for a suitable location to construct a VLF transmitter and antenna. The purchase of 5,000 acres in and around the Jim Creek Valley, which is located in the western foothills of the Cascade Range about 9 miles due east of Arlington in Stahomish County, was approved by the CNO a year later. A Stilaguamish Native American lived in the valley and was known as Old Jim by non-Native immigrants in the 19th century, and the name was given to Jim Creek in honor of him. Over the course of many years, he tended to trap line up and down the small creek until one day he ventured upstream and vanished into thin air. Old Jim's Creek was eventually shortened to Jim Creek, and the name was also applied to the valley through which it passed at one point. Wheeler Mountain, located on the north side of Jim Creek Valley, and Blue Mountain, located on the south side, are both more than 3,000 feet in elevation. At its core, the Navy's idea was to convert the entire valley between the two peaks into a massive dish antenna, which would have been the world's largest at around 980 acres at the time. The contracts for the design and installation of the antenna, transmitter, and associated electrical components were awarded to two divisions of the Radio Corporation of America. The towers and support buildings at the facility were developed by the Navy's Bureau of Yards and Docks, and the Public Works Officer for the 13th Naval District was in charge of all site preparation, road construction, and building construction. More than 725 acres of the valley were cleared of trees, the majority of which were Douglas fir beginning in the spring of 1949. This took more than a year, but it was important both for fire protection and because trees tend to absorb enormous volumes of energy produced by the antenna, according to the National Fire Protection Association. Using the cleared slopes as a starting point, six 200-foot steel towers were built on the crests of each mountain to serve as anchors for ten catenary cables that were stretched over the valley in a zigzag fashion. When a flexible cable, wire, or chain hangs freely between two elevated points in a catenary shape, the shape is described as follows. These cables, which are 1 inch thick and range in length from 5,640 feet to 8,800 feet, are made of steel sheathed, copper, and serve as the dish of the antenna. In order to ensure that the antenna can stay functioning, even if the other half is damaged or shut down for maintenance or repair, they have been divided into two groups of five members each. A vertical cable, known as a down-lead, runs from the lowest point of each of the ten catenary cables down 900 feet to one of ten towers on the valley floor, which serves as the connection between the antenna and the transmitter. The main radiating elements of the antenna are these vertical cables, the miles of sagging catenary wires that curate the dish, serve to amplify the power of the signal received from the transmitter. If the antenna is considered the voice of Naval Radio Station Jim Creek, the transmitter is the beating heart of the station's infrastructure. It is here that electrical power delivered through a transmission line from the Bonneville Dam on the mighty Columbia River is converted to a very low-frequency electromagnetic signal, which is then used to encode the information sent out through the antenna array. The power delivered through the transmission line is 2,000 kilowatts. Building the transmitting equipment took place at the RCA Victor facility in Camden, New Jersey, and it was brought to Seattle on 27 freight cars before being trucked to the Jim Creek Valley via a road constructed by crews from the 13th Naval District. Installation of the transmitter took place on the second floor of a windowless structure constructed on the valley floor under and halfway along the span of the above antenna array. The structure had no windows. In addition to being earthquake-resistant, it is also entirely encased with copper sheathing to provide protection against powerful electromagnetic radiation. In the same way as the antenna is separated into two separable halves, the transmitter is divided into two separable halves to ensure the ongoing functioning in the event that either half becomes useless for whatever given reason. An electrical current, such as that supplied by the Bonneville Dam, is not an electromagnetic wave. Rather, it is the source from which electromagnetic waves are generated. When electric charges accelerate, oscillate, electromagnetic waves are produced, and this is exactly what the transmitter does on the simplest of levels. The specifics of how this is performed entail obscure laws of electrodynamics that are beyond the scope of this episode, and frankly, my understanding of them. Let me simply state that the Jim Creek transmitter uses its 2,000 kilowatt electrical power input to produce a VLF signal at a frequency of 24.8 kilohertz with a maximum transmitting strength of 1,200,000 watts, or 12,000 kilowatts. But it is normally operated at a somewhat lower intensity. While Jim Creek can't connect with naval units all around the world like it used to, its major duty in recent years has been one-way communications with submarines submerged in the Pacific Ocean. This is made possible by the combination of low frequency, long wavelength, and strong signal intensity. Two transmission lines, one for each half of the antenna array, run from the transmitter building to a total of 13 feeder support towers, ten of which are located on the lower slope of Blue Mountain and three of which are located near the transmitter building. The transmitter building itself has a height of 145 feet. Feeder lines run from these towers to the down-lead towers, which in turn connect to the antenna's catenary cables through a series of crossovers. A total of 10 buildings are connected by cables to the downlead towers on the opposite side of the valley on the lower slope of Wheeler Mountain to act as counterweights to the feeder lines on the opposite side of the valley. The high electromagnetic field generated by the transmitter, in addition to the massive and meticulously built grounding system around the transmitter building and beneath the antenna array, must be addressed. For this purpose, more than 200 miles of copper, wire, cables, and screens are buried under the valley floor in a precise configuration in order to meet the need. Upon completion, the Jim Creek transmitter had twice the strength of any other military transmitter in existence and was significantly more powerful than any commercial radio station in the U.S. at the time. On the 17th of November, 1953, more than seven years and $14 million after the Navy's Bureau of Ships began the hunt for a suitable site, Naval radio station Jim Creek was ready to demonstrate its unique capabilities. The station was dedicated to the United States Navy. Brigadier General David Sarnoff, chairman of the RCA Board of Directors, was sitting at a Morse Key pounding out the wireless code. Sarnoff was the person who initially informed the American public of the Titanic disaster in 1912 while working as station manager for a Marconi radio station in New York City. He was flanked by the Chief of Naval Operations Admiral Robert B. Carney, who delivered to Sarnoff the following through a dictated message. We hope that this first message will help to establish another relationship between you and your native country. We are creating a new security channel from America to the naval units that serve as the country's outer defense ramparts with this technology. The only way for the dignitaries in attendance, over 200 naval, industrial, and political executives to know if the system was functioning properly was if they received responses to the broadcast message. They waited with bated breath as the minutes ticked away on the clock. According to an article published a few months later in an RCA-produced magazine, when the acknowledgments started to come back, it was six minutes later, and some of them had relayed four or five stages to get to Jim Creek Valley. The first came from the battleship Wisconsin, which was stationed off the coast of Japan. When word arrived from the carrier Yorktown, the destroyer Floyd B. Parks, and the submarine Bluegill in the western Pacific, it was followed by news from the submarine Sablefish in the North Atlantic and the cruiser Pittsburgh in the South Atlantic, as well as from the carrier Tarawa in the Mediterranean and the destroyer Charles Sperry in Florida waters. As the responses came in, Admiral Carney and General Sarnoff plotted the locations of the units on a globe map that had been set up at the transmitter site in preparation for the ceremony. Additionally, RCA communications conveyed news of receipt of the message to distant places via its 65-nation radio circuit as well as aboard passenger liners at sea in addition to receiving acknowledgments from the naval forces. The Jim Creek Naval Radio Station had accomplished what it was constructed to do, which was something that had never been done before. For the very first time in the history of radio communications, a message was relayed directly and instantly from a single transmitter to thousands of receivers all over the world. In order to demonstrate the tactical significance of this achievement, consider that the answers, which were broadcast at higher frequencies, shorter wavelengths, and with significantly less power, took significantly longer to arrive, and many of them had to be relayed through multiple transmitters. However, Jim Creek's primary function was not to receive messages. Rather, it was to broadcast messages rapidly and securely to distant military assets, and it was extremely effective in this endeavor as well. Following the successful completion of the test, Sarnoff presented Admiral Carney with the keys to the control panel, stating, As a representative of the Radio Corporation of America, I am pleased to hand over to you the world's most powerful radio transmitter ever curated. Allow me to convey my hope, which I know is shared by everyone in our military services, that this tremendous instrument for transmitting intelligence will contribute to our national security and the peace of the world. I am confident that this will happen. The naval radio station Jim Creek has been doing this for practically the whole last half of the 20th century and the first quarter of the 21st, according to their website. As of 2019, the facility was operated and maintained by a team of 21 civilians who had received specialized training. Despite the fact that it is routinely maintained and updated, much of its equipment, including the generator, is now deemed to be outdated and obsolete. There were some concerns about the reliability of the 2,000 kilowatts of electricity that Jim Creek receives from the Bonneville Dam, which is more than 170 miles to the south. Fires, storms, sabotage, an electromagnetic pulse from a nuclear explosion, and other natural and man-made disasters might disrupt the flow of information and commerce. Surprisingly, it appears that for the first four years following its activation, naval radio station Jim Creek did not have a backup power supply in case the connection failed. Although the Navy was aware of this requirement, it did not act on it until it purchased a 2,500-kilowatt generator from the Worthington Corporation in Buffalo, New York in 1952. It's unknown why it wasn't installed until five years later, but when it was, in 1957, it performed as expected according to the manufacturer. A replacement for the Worthington generator, which had been in service for more than 60 years, was completed in 2019. Naval radio station Jim Creek has numerous aspects that have been declared eligible for inclusion in the National Register of Historic Places. Because the Navy had done business with the Worthington Corporation, known under various identities over the years for more than a hundred years, it made sense for them to turn to the company for the generator. Henry Rossiter Worthington, the firm's eponymous founder, was born in New York City and, although having just a high school education, went on to become a prolific inventor and a founding member of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers, ASME. As a result of the completion of the Erie Canal in 1825, historians refer to this period as America's Canal Era, and by 1840, more than 3,000 miles of constructed waterways connected cities and towns throughout the eastern United States. With a childhood fascination for canal boats, Worthington patented his first invention on the 24th of July, 1844, when he was just 26 years old. It was an automatic independent water reciprocating pump, which eliminated the need to use a hand pump in order to keep the boiler of a steam engine full when a canal boat was at rest. The following year, he went on to form a partnership with William H. Baker to form the firm of Worthington & Baker, and in 1850, the company made its first sale of pumps to the Navy, which were used aboard the USS Susquehanna, a side-wheel steam frigate, which was launched in 1849. In addition to being used on steamships, the pump would eventually be found in factories, mines, quarries, and even in hotels. Upon William Baker's death in 1860, William Worthington inherited complete control of the company, which was renamed the Worthington Hydraulic Pump Works in 1862. While serving in the Union Navy during the Civil War, Worthington was tasked with designing pumps for vessels such as the storied USS Monitor, the North's first ironclad warship. In 1880, when Worthington passed away, his son, Charles Campbell Worthington, assumed control of the company. Following a change of ownership in 1899, the company was taken into the International Steam Pump Company, which was controlled by entrepreneur Benjamin Guggenheim. As a result of Guggenheim's death in the Titanic disaster in 1912, again, yet another weird connection this episode has to that terrible sinking, his business was forced to close its doors. It bounced back and went on to operate under many identities, including the American Worthington Pump and Machinery Corporation. The same year that it was renamed the Worthington Corporation, the company sold the generator for Jim Creek to the United States Navy. The company had, without a doubt, expanded its product line by that point to include equipment other than pumps. With a 16-cylinder diesel-powered engine and a generator-exciter unit produced by the Electric Machinery Manufacturing Company of Minneapolis, Minnesota, Worthington provided the Navy with a powerful and reliable unit. Approximately $1,006,897 was spent on the engine and unit assembly at the Worthington-Buffalo facility in Buffalo, New York, and the unit was delivered to the Navy for that sum. In order to house it, the Navy constructed Building 39 at Jim Creek in 1957, which was described as a concrete frame building with reinforced concrete panels welded to the columns, steel-framed clerestory lights, and a concrete panel roof system. It is roughly 5,000 feet northwest of the transmitter building and around 2,500 feet beyond the parameter of the antenna array, lengths that were most likely mandated by the necessity to shield the generator from severe electromagnetic radiation during the construction of the transmitter. It is connected to the transmitter by way of an underground power cable with a capacity of 2,500 kilowatts, which is 500 kilowatts more than the power provided by the transmission line from the Bonneville Dam. A generator, in its most basic definition, is a device that converts mechanical rotation into an electrical current. The engine, in this example, the Worthington diesel, is responsible for providing rotation. In more technical words, a generator is made up of two magnets, a fixed magnet, the stator, which provides the stationary magnetic field, and a revolving magnet, the rotor, whose spin is generated by the engine, which generates a rotating magnetic field. The following paper, developed for the Washington State Department of Architecture and Historical Preservation, provides a more detailed explanation of how Jim Creek's engine, generator, and exciter operate together to generate electricity. Power is generated by the engine driving the primary drive shaft, which in turn rotates the rotor or field coils in the generator, resulting in the generation of magnetic flux, which is required for the generation of electrical power. An electromagnet that rotates requires a direct current electric power supply in order to excite the magnetic field produced. The exciter is responsible for this power. The system keeps track of the generator output and controls the magnetic field to keep the desired voltage constant. When the load on the generator is raised, the current flow increases, resulting in a voltage drop as a result. In response to this fallen voltage, the excitation system boosts the strength of the magnetic field to restore the voltage to the current level. Naval radio station Jim Creek has never been classified as a top-secret site, at least in part because of its huge footprint, although the specifics of its operations are tightly guarded secrets. It has been doing its job in relative obscurity for the last 75 years. The transmitter and antenna were normally only accessible to 21 federal civilian employees as of 2019 who were responsible for keeping things running 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, all around the year. Because many of the Jim Creek's mechanical and electrical components are over 65 years old, specific training is required for them. According to Chief Warrant Officer Mark Gordon, who was interviewed in 2017, those who work on our radio repair systems must be familiar with older technology down to the component level. That is why we provide on-the-job training in-house at our facility. The naval radio station Jim Creek was constructed long before computers were widely used and around the same time that the first workable transmitter was developed and deployed. Despite the fact that the transmitter relies on some older technology like vacuum tubes, it continues to play an important role in the Navy's communication systems. A broadcast on Russian state television on the 29th of February, 2019, hosted by Dmitry Kislyov, who has claimed to have a close relationship with Russian President Vladimir Putin, Kislyov used a big map and computer graphics to identify various American facilities that he claims would be the first targets for Russian missiles if a nuclear exchange occurred between the two countries. Its targets included the Pentagon, Camp David, and naval radio station Jim Creek, among numerous other places. Observed from orbit, the area cleared for Jim Creek's antenna array resembled a target, with the transmitter building positioned dead center in the middle of the target. Nonetheless, Kiselyov's trustworthiness was highly questionable, and this was not only due to his job as a propagandist for the Russian government. As part of the same program, he identified as first-strike targets two military bases in the United States that had been closed for around two decades, one of which was still standing abandoned, and the other of which was converted into a business park, so make of his statements what you will. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include the Naval History and Heritage Command website, globalsecurity.org, the Bureau of Ships Journal, Volume 2, Number 11, Popular Mechanics, edisontechcenter.org, HistoryLink, jimcreek.navylifepnw.com, the Everett Herald, and the Seattle Times. Thank you for listening to Episode 40, The U.S. Navy in the Jim Creek Valley. Episode 41 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone.
0: There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queeds and on the Hoh. There's calm on the Nisqually born of ageless ice and snow, a land that nature loves so much she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's chimicum and stillicum where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still of Guamish and the swirling Skookumchuck, And moklips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound A little bit of heaven is a shock on Puget Sound